0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. It's a horrific story. Everything was going great. The nation had been given the law, they had the book of the covenant, the regulations of God had been laid out, the identity of God had been manifest both physically and by virtue of his revelation. His name had been installed into the fabric of who the Israelites were. Everything was going so well. Aaron had two sons. These two sons were called to be ministers, and they were priests, and this was their first day on the job. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and, after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I Will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. If you go back up in the end of chapter nine, you find out that this is not the first time fire had come out from the presence of the Lord. Not long before this, fire had come out and consumed an offering, and now it comes out and consumes the offerers. Why? Because there was strange fire offered. No small amount of discourse and dialogue has been waged on what this strange fire was. And we don't know exactly. We just know that it was simply what verse 2 tells us. Excuse me, at the end of verse 1, the Lord had not commanded it. Biblical scholars call this the regulative principle. In other words, our worship is regulated by what God commands There are chapters and books and a leather cover around your your Bible that contains how God is to be worshipped. In our series on the church, we have to begin where this story lets off, where it ends. What are we to do? How do we do, church, left to our own intuition, left to our own suspicions, left to our own instincts, we're not going to do very well. If I were to ask you, what is the mission of the church, what would you say? What is the mission of the church? Strangely, that has been the most asked and widely answered question in our generation. We have all sorts of iterations of church. It seems that every book I get, and they come fast and furious, every book I get on the church contains on the back cover the simple word in the description, new, new. A new approach, a new way, a new system, a new this, a new that. Could it be that instead of looking for something new, we need to look for something old? Could it be that everything that God has given us for how to do church has already been explained? Could it be that we don't need to reinvent or reimagine, as one book says, the church? Some people think the mission of the church is liberation theology. You saw that 100 years ago. It's still prevalent today. Where is In which the church is called to go into unindustrialized uh, countries under the auspices of missions and liberate them from physical distress and physical suffering. Now, I think that that's certainly a part of what God wants a Christian to do. When we see an opportunity to serve, we should do that. But is that the mission of the church? Others think it's social justice. You've heard the term mercy ministries thrown around a lot in recent years, that the church is to be about mercy ministries, soup kitchens, feeding the poor, making sure that we're, we're not living above any standard that would allow us to liquidate ourselves in order to serve others. Who would argue with that as a philosophy, but is that the mission of the church? And by the way, the end of a social justice church is always pretty quick. If you liquidate everything pretty quick, uh, real quickly, then then what what do you do? Is the church really called to be the social answer to the world? Or a social club? Some people actually look at the church as a social alternative to the world. I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't go there, I don't go this other place, but I go to church, and that's my social alternative to the world. And maybe even closer to home, I think those in ilk can easily think of the church as a museum for the truth. High walls, deep moats, and a very rusty drawbridge. We have it all right, and we want everybody who's all wrong to stay far away. Is that the mission of the church? My dad and I were close. I loved my dad. My dad was a drill sergeant in the Marine Corps. He was a detective in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He had... Uh, so many things that he taught me. I can hear my dad speaking uh, almost every day in something I say. I just see the words go out and I say, That was Larry Holland. I heard him say that right through me. And students, you listen to your parents now and you think, I'm never going to be like that. I'm sorry. You are going to be just like that. My dad pounded a lesson into me so hard that it left uh, his imaginary voice still in my ears. He says, Ricky, Anything worth doing is worth doing right. He was a disciplinarian. Anything worth doing is worth doing right. But to do something right, to do something excellent, you have to have the right ingredients, the right components. Even though my dad said this, this was a man who on Christmas morning and any other time had no concept of instructions or directions when putting together anything. This is the same man who by, by, by believed that God's GPS was embedded in a masculine DNA code and it never worked out so well. I remember dad trying to put together things without instructions. Absolute arrogance. Hearing my mom say, honey, that's enough from you, woman. No, he didn't say it like that. I think the maddest I ever saw my dad Followed by uh, him laughing hysterically was my brother Mark. Wanting to, we, we had a a Labrador Retriever. It was it was my my first dog. I loved that dog. His name was Augie, and the reason his name was Augie is because when we got him, I couldn't say doggy, and I said Augie, and they they just named him Augie. So Augie was um, was a German Shepherd. We grew up with him. He was probably five or six years old. My brother was was four or five, and. Um, He uh, uh, was in the garage one day and my father came home only to see Augie just so wonderfully and dutifully sitting in the garage, panting with this expression of ecstasy on his face because of how he was being treated and how he was being petted because he was looking out and my my brother Mark had a gallon of oil-based orange paint painting him entirely orange because he wanted to turn Augie into a German Shepherd. I think that dog died with orange paint on him. The point is, anything worth doing is worth doing right. The best intentions and the best goals will not make the wrong way to do something right. Ask Nadab and Abihu. Oh, I'm sure their intentions were well. I'm sure they had the regulation of God and thought, but if we do this, it will be better. Didn't work out so well. God's work must be done God's way according to God's word, period. God's work must be done God's way according to God's word. It's so tragic that few Christians utilize the instruction manual that God has given us called the word of God to accomplish the ministry he's called us to. The church is to be only and entirely defined by the pages of scripture, both who it is, what she does, and her mission, Well, tonight I want to unpack with you this amazing treasure of ministry insight. It's kind of a a philosophy of ministry, developing how do we do what we do. You hear that term thrown around a lot, a philosophy of ministry. All that means is determining what we're doing and, and how we do it. If I may be a little bit autobiographical, these two verses we're going to examine tonight are my life verses. Everyone has their, their, their go-to verses, their life verses. These are the ones that I love. In fact, I had a, a friend put them together uh, in a very beautifully framed uh, uh, articulation of them, and it's in our TES room right now, these two verses are. Follow along as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we proclaim him, or as the ESV, I think, and the King James get it right, him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose... Also, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The book of Colossians is about the greatness of Jesus Christ. You can say it this way. The book of Colossians is the clearest and most succinct Christology in the New Testament. He focuses on the person, the identity, and the work of Christ in such a condensed, compressed, dense fashion that it's, it's almost impossible to find a verse That's more than two verses away from a reference to Christ. In chapter 1, he outlines the fruits of the gospel. In Colossae, verses 3 to 8, then in verses 9 to 14, he prays for the believers there at Colossae and asks for their spiritual intelligence and spiritual conduct to be improved by God. And as he concludes his prayer in verse 14, he focuses on the preciousness of Jesus, the Son of God, which launches him into an anthem of praise and wonder about the greatness of Jesus and his redemptive purpose that goes from chapter 1, verse 15, all the way down to verse 23. Then in verses 24 to 27, Paul provides a personal testimony about his own ministry, and it blossoms into what I believe to be the most concise philosophy of ministry and personal ministry and church ministry in the whole New Testament. And that's the two verses before us, verses 28 and 29. What I want us to do is just dissect this and just have a a good old-fashioned roll-up-our-sleeves Bible study of these two verses because I think in these two verses you find the ingredients for doing ministry right. You find the elements for doing church right. You find... Uh, your personal and your corporate ministry not only defined and regulated but encouraged and empowered by these two simple verses. If you want to follow along specifically, we're going to look at six essentials for a biblical philosophy of ministry. Six essentials for a biblical philosophy of ministry. The first is to preach the right message. This is in verse 28. To preach. The right message. Now before we talk about what that message is, let me tell you that all you need to do is uh, Google any church in any city and visit on any Sunday, and you can find out what that church is about and where it's going and where it's come from by listening to the sermons. I don't mean this to be self-serving. This is not about Rick Holland. This is about this sacred piece of real estate right here that I inherited from a man who greatly honors God's word and greatly bows the knee to the purpose that this piece of furniture is to be used for? But let me say this. If this sacred disc, if the pulpit doesn't hold a Bible by a man who believes the Bible and you hear from it instruction from the Bible because the Bible is true, you are not in a biblically regulated God-honoring Christ-centered church. This is not a place for platitudes. We can have fun. We can have anecdotes. We can laugh. We can, we can uh, interact with each other. But I am only the delivery boy. Uh, I'm not even the cook. I'm the waiter. Um, can you imagine if I were to come and um, deliver to you? Uh, I used to work for UPS. Um, I was never a delivery guy. I never got that hire. I was the guy who sorted boxes uh, for for hours and hours all night. Can you imagine though, if I were a delivery man at UPS, and I knocked on your door, and you were expecting a package, and I knocked on the door, and you came to the door, and I said, "Hey," and I have the package in my hand, I said, "How you doing? Not great." Well, um, listen, I want to tell you a couple funny stories about my kids. And not only that, let me tell you what I did this week. Oh, I got three jokes for you. Oh, let me tell you uh, 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 about what I'm going to do on my vacation. Uh, Also, let me tell. What do you want? The package. You want the package. You don't want the UPS guy. You don't want a relationship with this guy. And if he's a nice guy, that's great. Tip him, do whatever you need to do. But you want the package. That's what this place is for. Preaching is for the delivery of God's word, not the delivery of the preacher. Just waiters. We just bring the, ta- the, the, the food to the table. We don't even make it. The right message is where you start. Preach the right message. Now you got to be careful. What is the right message? You might say the word of God and you would be right, but that's not specific enough. You might say the gospel and you would be right, but that's not specific enough. Paul says, he says, Him we proclaim. We proclaim Him. By the way, notice that it's a we. Who's the we? That's Paul and his associates. It's anyone who would preach the gospel, anyone who would represent the gospel. Not just preachers and ministers, but all who are genuine believers. You are called to be ministers and heralds of the sacred message of Jesus Christ. The responsibility of ministry, discipleship, evangelism is not the preacher's job alone. It's not for the pastors and the elders it is the privilege of every believer. You do believe in the priesthood of all believers, don't you? Then that has to work itself out in how you do ministry. Catalango is the word here. Proclaim, preach, stand and let people know. It means to make an announcement. It was used of a mail delivery man in the ancient Near East. What he would do is he would come, and when he would walk into a city bringing mail, when it was mailbag, uh, there, there were no mailboxes, he would go to the city square or to the gate, and he would, everyone would know he was, there and he was there, and it was like mail call in the military. People would come around, and he would say, I have a letter for you, and I have a letter for you, and then he would have letters from the emperor or the tetrarch or the king, and he would read that to everyone. He was proclaiming a message, get this, that was not his The verb tense here reveals that it's a continual and habitual action. So, we are to continually and habitually announce, proclaim, like it's a major announcement, something. What do we announce? Here it is. Him. That shouldn't surprise you who the him is. If you go right back up in the context, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he's referenced in the last phrase of verse 28. Him we proclaim, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Mark this, the content of Paul's message was the person of Jesus from beginning to end. His proclamation was permeated, it was saturated with the love and the wonder and commitment, identity and the works and the sacred preciousness of Jesus, his Lord. His message was a person. His plan was a person. His philosophy was a person. Too many times I think our faith devolves into behavior modification. Just trying to change the way we act or think. Do this, try harder, be better. And there's, there, That's certainly a fruit of, of our, our following of Christ, but that's not the purpose, is it? The Mormons can do that. Psychologists can do that. I can do that to my dog. Behavior is not hard to change. The heart is impossible to change without the power of God. Be sure that all these things are to be taught, what we believe, how we change. But always and only in reference to Jesus or you will create Pharisees and legalists. We love our parents, but when they said, you do this because it's right, that's not motivation enough when you grow up. We do this because not doing this offends a person. It's not a new message from Paul, Colossians 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians one twenty three, but we preach Christ. We preach him crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, it wasn't in how good a preacher I was, it wasn't in how I said what I said, it was in what I said. I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is actually a relative of mine, uh, it was probably a year, year and change ago who was talking about the fact that, that he had, he says, I'm conflicted, Rick, because I, there's this one big church and the guy is super entertaining to, to listen to and he's, the time goes by so fast. He's funny. He has this great PowerPoint and all this stuff. He says, but, but I just feel empty. He says, there's a guy down the street and there's 13 people in his church plant and he just explains the Bible. Where do you think I should go? That wasn't a, wasn't a hard question to answer. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. We are not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak Christ, and Paul says this, we speak Christ in the sight of God. Can I just give you a little, little uh, insight into what it's like to do this week in and week out? I'm glad you come. I'm thankful you come. You're, you're encouraging when you come, but I... I my prayer when I'm coming up those stairs is, God, make, make me accurate for you. The guy who wrote this, that's a terrible way to say it, the God who wrote this is sitting on the front row, actually standing here right now. That, that's, you, you, I want to be accurate and not misrepresent him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, we fix our eyes on Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 9, we, we, we proclaim the excellence of, excellencies of him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now just take a deep breath and watch and, and listen. Paul, just read Colossians. You can't hardly go. I, I would challenge you that you cannot go 15 seconds in the book of Colossians without bumping into a reference to Jesus. Verse 14, he's the savior of redemption. Verse 15, the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, the creator of all creation, the instrument by which all creation came into existence, the goal of all creation. Verse 17, the preexistent God and the sustainer of all things. Verse 18, he's the head of the body of the church, the beginning of the new creation, the most preeminent person to ever exist. Verse 19, he's the all-sufficient savior. Verse 20, he's the means of reconciliation, the only God, the suffering savior whose death makes peace. That's just seven verses. We can systematize these verses by observing that with respect to God, Jesus is the image. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, he says the, he's the image of the invisible God. You ever stop to think how ridiculous that is? He's the image of the invisible God. He's the what you can see of what cannot be seen. No one can see God and die. Look unto Jesus, fix your eyes on him, he is God. How does that work out? I don't know, but I'm excited to find out when I get to heaven. He is, Hebrews chapter one says, it, the, the language there is interesting. It says, in these, he's spoken in many portions in many ways, but in these last days, God has spoken to us. The, the, te- the English text says, in his son. The Greek says, he's spoken to us in son. That's the language. The language God chose to speak is the incarnation, is Christ. You want to know what God's like? Read the Gospels. How would God deal with an adulterer waiting to be stoned? See how Jesus did that. How would God deal, we read it in Matthew this morning, with Pharisees who were very proud to be teachers of the law but had nothing to do with obeying the law? Well, see what Jesus Said. He's the what can be seen of what cannot be seen. With respect to creation, this text tells us that he's the firstborn, the most important. Not, not a created being, though, and he wasn't uh, the firstborn ever. There were people born before Jesus. This is like uh, um, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Esau was born, born first, but Jacob is said to be the firstborn because he was the prototokos, the one of inheritance, the one of most importance, preeminence. And with respect to the church, he, Jesus, is the head. He is the authority. Jesus is our message. He is the one we proclaim as opposed to the what that we proclaim. He does not simply provide salvation. Jesus is salvation. We don't communicate the right message. We will create the wrong allegiance. Personally and corporally, if we don't communicate the right message, we will create the wrong allegiance. If our message is, is don't drink, don't smoke, and make sure that you, you drive an American car, then we will create the wrong allegiance. The people we share Christ with should be drawn to Jesus more than to us. To Jesus more than to the Christian way of living. Why? Chapter 2, verse 3 tells us, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of Christ. So, how do we practically equip ourselves to know Him, the message that we are to proclaim? Let me be really practical. Learn and study and memorize truth about Christ. So, you get that knock on the door, and you will, maybe this week. I saw them out just last week in the snow. You get that knock on the door and they say, hey, can we talk to you about uh, uh, Jesus? And you may or may not say, yes, you can slam the door if you want to. I want those people to come in. I want to give them tea and cookie and crackers. I want to keep them in my house as long as I can so they don't go to my neighbors. And I, I love talking to those people. Just come in, let's talk about it. Could be the Mormons, could be the Jehovah's Witnesses. Either one of them are going to tell you that Jesus is not who the Bible tells you Jesus is. Are you prepared to answer that question? When they say, the Bible says that Jesus is not God. Can you answer that question? The Bible says that Jesus was Lucifer's brother. They had a fight. Jesus won. He got to be the Savior. Lucifer had to be the devil. That's Mormon theology. Can you defend against that? Do you know your Savior? Is he the object of your most precious and sacred knowledge? Do you know him Better than anyone else you love. You have to study, you have to look at him. Every other person, by the way, that you get closer to, you'll find flaws, right? Jesus is the only person that you can continually study, and he gets better and more perfect. Study his deity, his character, his claims, his teaching, his miracles. His death, his resurrection, his response to life, his responses to death, his grace, his influence, his virgin birth, his all-fulfilling satisfaction, his gospel that is about him, through him and to him, know about the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not a plan. The gospel is a person. We found that out in Romans chapter 1. Remember? Uh, Verse 1. At the end of verse 1, it says, the gospel of God, and in verse 3, it says, concerning his son. The good news of God is he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 17, three. How do you define eternal life? We studied this a couple of years ago. You don't define eternal life by the internal lexicography of that phrase. What do you mean by that? You don't, you don't define eternal life by eternal, forever, life living. That's not eternal life. It's part of it. But that's not how Jesus defined eternal life. Here's how Jesus defined eternal life. John 17, 3. And this, Jesus says, he's praying, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life defined by Jesus Christ. Remember when we studied that? It's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus prays in the third person. It would be odd. Can you imagine if, if I was praying at the beginning of the service? Lord, we pray for Rick Holland that he would preach in, in, in honor of you today. You would go, that's awkward. Jesus says, he's praying that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. When he said Jesus Christ used his name like that, he was affirming to the disciples that he was indeed who they thought he might be. That was the Messiah. I love the terrible, the terrible grammar of Philippians 1, 21. Awful English, even worse Greek. It's really bad grammatically. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And you need a verb there. You want a helping verb. For to me is loving Christ, serving Christ, worshiping Christ. He doesn't say that. For to me, life is Christ. Do you see that? Living is Christ. Jesus, he is all the most important thing in our life. Let me guarantee frustration for you as a Christian. Lose focus of Jesus. You'll lose interest in your Bible reading. You'll lose interest in church. You'll lose interest in care groups. You'll lose interest because he is the only thing that uh, satisfies. A way of living won't. What's our message? We better have the right message. Our message is Jesus. And I can promise you, by the accountability of the elders, as long as God gives me breath, I want to make sure that week in and week out, I tell you that our message is that God sent his son, God, very God, man, very man, who died a a sinner's death for sinners, being holy without sin, as a criminal, as a substitute for those who believe and rose from the dead after three days. That's our message. The Great Commission is not go and feed the poor. It's a collateral obedience. It's not go and help the sick. That's a collateral obedience. It's go and tell them about me, Jesus said. So that's the longest point, trust me, the right message. Secondly, not only preach the right message, utilize the right message means. Utilize the right means. Now it's going to... Can I get in your kitchen a little bit? Are you ready? Get your seatbelt tight? Here we go. Admonishing and teaching. Two participles, admonishing and teaching. Remember, this is attached to we, not just to Paul. It's not just the preacher. This is the we. This is the church. This is us. Admonishing and teaching. The proclamation of Christ begins with and involves two elements as the means or the way to communicate the message of the gospel, which is Jesus. One looks at the negative side, one looks at the positive side. The negative side is this, admonishing. Admonishing means to correct. It means to get in one another's kitchen, to find and isolate something in someone's life and to confront it because you love them and you care for their soul. Why do you not confront people? You know why you don't confront people? You know why I don't confront people? Because we love ourselves. We want so badly for them to like us that risking the fact of confronting them is too traumatic for us, so we'll just keep things as they are. And I know you say, Well, I can't. There's no way I can get you know the speck out of someone else's when I have a log in mine. How about this? Get the log out. Then deal with the speck. Jesus didn't say that, so you say, Oh, we're a bunch of plank eyes. We just you know, we got telephone poles, we're whacking each other around with these planks coming out, so we don't have to confront anybody. No, the whole purpose is get it out so you can do that. We care about each other in that way. It's nuthateo, to to correct through instruction and warning. Are you, do you love the people in this church? Do Do you love me? Do you love the staff? Do you love the elders enough? Do you love us enough to correct us? To correct one another. Practically, this means to be a faithful and clear sharer of God's warnings and God's admonitions in the scripture. There's also a second word, didascontes. This means to instruct, to help learn, to teach. This is the positive side. This is interesting. Did you know that you are called to be a teacher? An instructor of one another, not just to leave that to the teachers and the elders and the preachers of your church, you are called to teach the great Commission. we love going and making disciples, but also let's just say, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The great commission involves instruction and teaching, which means you have to know what you're supposed to teach, and you're willing to sacrifice and do that teaching. Now here it is. Are you ready? Where do you do that? How can you do that? At Mission Road Bible Church, we we have tried to organize organize that by the uh, introduction of care groups. Oh, you can do it on Sundays, but can I just tell you, it's hard to do it on Sundays. They keep turning the lights out on us on Sundays. A care group is a great place. A growth group meeting somebody at a coffee shop it doesn't matter where. But do you have a place where you are intentionally giving and receiving admonition and teaching? And let me tell you, we have, we have given you a slow pitch in the batter's cage by the invention of care groups. That's what that's for. Now you say, yeah, but that's only for members. Then become a member. That's another sermon. Please. Please, church is not an event. It's not a place you come and go. It's not this building. You are the church. It's this. Remember that? It's the people. That's the church. I just connected with the kids for the first time ever. (laughs) I won't say it, but one of those kids went... It was good. You do know that it is, right? Okay. Just making sure. Hey, teaching truth is not popular, and teaching it to one another is not always well received. As equal as it, we we're talking about admonishing and teaching, let me ask you this Are you admonishable and are you teachable? Someone comes up to you and says, Hey, I, you know, I don't know what's in your heart, but it sure seems like you're X, Y, or Z. Is your first response, Well, It's interesting you said that because you're A, B, and C. And D, and E, and F, and G, and H, I, J. Uh, are, are, Are you teachable? The greatest point of Christian maturity is teachability. It's to receive instruction, to receive correction, and say, thank you for caring for my soul. You can go away and bite a hole in your tongue if you want to, but it's to thank them and to deal with that issue without throwing rocks back And understand this person came to you at great risk. Love them for that. Are you a teacher? Are you admonisher? Are you in a care group? Are you a receiver of teaching and admonishing? Listen, I'm not, this is not manipulative. You can do this outside of care group, but you're certainly supposed to do it in the most intimate fashion you can find, and we have created care groups for that purpose. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. In other words, not everyone receives that correction and instruction the same way. Parents, you know that, right? I got three boys. I won't tell you which one is which, but I had one who had a leather behind. We could, we could be tough, 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 and it just took tougher, 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 tougher. And one of them I could say, son, and he would melt. It's different. Paul is saying you apply instruction and care in different ways for different people. Listen to what he says. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. And he's urging the Thessalonians to do that with each other, not saying this is what I'm going to do as the pastor. The right way. We have to utilize the right means. The means is admonishing And correcting one another. Number three, cast the right vision. This is very simple. Three times in the Greek, three times in the New American Standard, there's a phrase used Every man, every man, every man. Our culture breeds an attitude of seeking the best and leaving the rest. This was never the heart of our Lord or the biblical writers. I remember being in FCA in high school, and a guy came in, and he is a well meaning, benevolent guy. I'm sure he loved the Lord. Uh, but he said, I remember him telling us if you can win the head cheerleader and the captain of each team to Christ, you will win your school for Christ. I think he I, I think he really meant that. He really wanted uh, Christ to be known. I, I appreciate that. But that's not the thrust of this verse. It says you go after every man. And if the church, if the church responds to this message rightly, the church is going to have a wide variety and range of people. Colors and socioeconomic levels. Socially acceptable. Socially unacceptable. Smart. Not so smart. Educated. Uneducated. That's the whole panoply. God is blind to those things. Sounds odd to say, but God is blind to those things. He sees people as souls with temporary bodies. And that's how we should too. Every man, every man, every man. I mean, just look at the disciples. I mean, we'll study that someday, but what a ragtag group of guys. And talk about not liking each other. You had a zealot who was against Rome for manipulating through Roman means and a tax collector you, that was worse than anything you can imagine. That's worse than a KU Missouri basketball game, which I know doesn't happen anymore, but anyway. Back in the day, that's worse than that. It's worse than black and white or black and Mexican as we had all in LA, all these racial. There was nothing worse than a zealot and a tax collector. And they were together in the discipleship. It's remarkable. Every man, every man, every man, every man, You are a full cup of Jesus Christ. And it's so full, everyone you bump into, you spill Christ on them. It's just wonderfully uh, 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 splashing. You you can't help but talk about Christ. This is convicting for me. You talk about what's most important about you. Most important to you, rather, right? I I know when, when August comes, I will... Talk about Tennessee football. I might, that's the best time to talk about it is in August, um, and uh, I love Tennessee football and love grew up going to the games. It means so much to me. And if you get around me, it is so easy for me to talk to you about that because I love it. And then a few weeks later, deer season will start, and I will be so excited to talk about deer season and hanging stands and and you know moving from a spraying tick spray to moving into. Um, uh, goose down, you know, uh, over layers and over layers. I, I love to hunt. I love Tennessee football. You get around me and we'll talk about that. What do you talk about? Talk about what's most important to you. So if we don't talk about Jesus, what inference should we make? Number four, the right goal. The right goal. We have to implement the right goal. That's to be complete in Christ. To be complete in Christ. Paul very interestingly says, the end game is maturity, is completion in Christ. Look at the end of verse 29. For this purpose, excuse me, uh, so every man, every man we may present with all wisdom, it's done with a great amount of wisdom, Every man complete in Christ, targeting the right goal. It's real simple. Two categories, not hard to explain. Everyone you will ever bump into is in one of two categories. They are in category A, which is they don't know Christ, so you move them into the introduction of Christ and the gospel. That's the maturity in Christ for that person. A person who knows Christ, our interaction with each other, is to move each other into greater maturity in Christ, to know him better, to proclaim him better, to love him more sweetly. It's only possible when we have the right message, by the way. The goal of ministry is not to create a big gathering of people it's not merely to have fun and happiness and it's especially not to create that social alternative to the world. It's to present the glories of Jesus Christ and influence others to enjoy them with us. Let me say it again. The wrong goal will create the wrong strategy. Numbers don't mean everything, but numbers do mean something. You just got to be careful what they mean. On Saturday afternoon at Neyland Stadium, 107,000 people are there. That means something, but you got to be careful what it means. This is who God has for us. Uh, I, I want to tell you, I, I have two conflicting uh, aspirations in, in my heart. I would love for there to be no empty seats in here. Not, not for your glory or my glory, but for God's. And at the same time, that terrifies me because of the accountability that we'll have to shepherd and have infrastructure to, to, um, to care for those people. So we need to grow into growing, right? Um, I was sharing with someone recently. I said, I think the Lord, they said, well, is your church growing? And I said, "We well, have got to define that. If you mean are we growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, I, I see amazing signs. Are we growing in numbers? Here and there. And and he was honest enough to say, does that bother you? Can I just tell you, not at all. In in, in fact, um, there are bigger churches within three miles of here. Um, God has called us to grow in depth. He will take care of the breadth. Satisfaction for coming shouldn't be the the bigger group. Satisfaction from preaching shouldn't be the bigger group. Satisfaction could come from doing ministry the right way. To present the glories of Christ to one another, to see people come to maturity in Christ. Oh, then we come to number five. Expand the right effort. Expand or extend the right effort. It's expansive. And it's expensive. He uses two words there for these. This purpose verse. 29, I labor, it's kapiao. It means to work to the point of wearisome effort. And it was used in tandem with another verb that's used here in a participle, agonizomai, which means to, to pass out from exhaustion. I agonize, that's where we get the, the English word. These were athletic terms used of the games where a person would absolutely collapse. Have you seen any of that in the Olympics in this last week? I was watching some uh, cross-country skiing. What a, a brutal sport that is to your body. And they were, they were doing, going, 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 and then they, they crossed the line and just collapsed and passed out from exhaustion. That's a picture that Paul paints here for ministry. Here's the reality, okay? Here's the truth. Here's the reality. If you want to do ministry this way, you're going to be tired. You're going to spend money. You're going to spend time. You're going to lose sleep. You're going to get up early. You're going to stay up late. You're going to have some cold meals. I've had many meals that I've sat down to eat, had a phone call, had to take that, and an hour later you come back to a cold plate. If you do this the right way, it will cost you kapiao and agonizomai, labor and effort. Unless we're the country club church. We just dress up on Sundays and come and show off our clothes and and say nice pleasantries to each other and we see each other next week. That's not called church. We hard work. We extend hard work. Ministry is tough. And ministry done right will cost you. But what you gain from what you expend is inexplicably greater. When the concept of striving and working, laboring is coupled together, these two Greek words, Paul says he gave everything within himself as a willing sacrifice to, for Christ to achieve his purpose for the saints. And don't, don't, don't succumb to the temptation that you can do this someday better than you can now. When the kids are grown, when I have more money, when I have more time. No, this may be the only time you ever have. Jesus may come back tomorrow. This may be the only ministry you ever have. So the only care group you're ever in, the only church you're ever a part of. Are you expending yourself in such a way that if your next step is into eternity, you will hear without breaking stride, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. It's effort. It's giving of our lives to Christ. And let me say again, ministry, I want to say this, I love it, before I, before I say this, let me tell you I love it. Ministry is extremely inconvenient. Someone once told me that, well, it must be great to be a pastor. You can do ministry all day and then you go home at night. I have to do ministry at night. Did you know that the people who I do ministry with work all day too? So... Most of our ministry happens after five o'clock or before 6 a.m. How's your effort? Grade yourself. How much effort are you expended into doing this, laboring and striving, so that you can create the maturity in the people around you by admonishing and teaching and giving them the right message to everyone who will hear? How's your grade? A, B, C, D, are you failing? How are you doing? What I'm trying to do in, in a non manipulative fashion is bear the burden of ministry with you. This isn't just for the elders, this is ours. It's remarkable. I just, I'm always distracted a bit in the middle of sermons, especially on Sunday night at night because I can see them with the lights. But I just think of all the cars driving up and down Mission Road that I can see out the window there. And just to think, we have the treasure in earthly vessels in here. We have what they need. But as much as we have what they need, listen, we have what each other needs. And that's what God has called us to do. I was sharing with college students um, this last weekend, about last weekend rather, that great medieval picture of a priest who had a dream, I don't remember his name, he had a dream and said that he had dreamed of, that God had given him a vision and a picture of heaven and one of hell. He said, the odd part of the dream was that everyone who was uh, in heaven or hell in the dream had forearms that were six feet long with spoons instead of hands. And in hell, everyone was starving to death because they could never feed themselves the soup. They were around this big cauldron of soup. He says, in heaven, everyone was satisfied. Why? Because they were feeding each other. That's a great picture of what the church is to be. Okay, now, if the verse ended there, I would be really discouraged and really tired and uh, excited about heaven tonight in a way that you wouldn't be if the last part of the verse didn't show up. We have to employ the right might, lastly. You gotta employ the right might. If this is just... uh, Labor and striving, Kapia'o and agonizabai. not really excited about that. Look at this interesting two sides of the same coin. For this purpose also I labor, striving, deep breath, according to his power, his power, which mightily works within me. Though Paul exhausted himself for Christ's purposes, his ministry was never exhausted because it was done in the sustaining power of God at work for him. Listen, there is no such thing as Christian burnout. If you're burning out ministry, you might as well raise your hand and say, I'm doing ministry according to the power of the flesh. Can you exhaust the inexhaustible battery power of God's power to energize our labor and our striving? Can we exhaust that? That doesn't mean you're not tired. That doesn't mean you oversleep your alarm clock sometime. That doesn't mean you fall asleep in meetings. It... Faithful Christians are tired people. doesn't mean you don't fall asleep in a sermon. I didn't say that one, but I wanted to. You know, I appreciate some of you. I can always tell, I've told some you this before. Uh, you know, some of you make such a good effort, and you can tell because of the eyebrows. I mean, you have two pe- kinds of people who fall asleep. The one who just goes like this. And I, yeah, I get that. You probably had a nine of ministry. okay? But then you have the people who, you're, 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 you're convinced that your eyebrows are attached to your eyelids. And if you can just pull those things up, <laughs> you'll somehow, and I appreciate the effort. <laughs> we can't do ministry in natural effort. We cannot do ministry according to natural effort. Hummingbird has to eat three times its weight every day because of the expenditure of energy. Three times its weight in food. A hawk, however, can eat once a week. You know why? Because it goes up and it glides on the currents. Well, that's the issue here. Are we are we ministering on the currents of God's grace and of his... Power. Here it is, drum roll, here's the test. So how do you know if you're operating in the ministry of the flesh or operating by the accessing of the power of the Spirit of God? You ready? Do you pray? If you do your ministry, your job, fellowship, your care group, your interaction, your administration, you name it. If you do any of that without prayer, you are, in essence, holding your hand up to heaven and saying, I got this. It's okay. I got this. God, help somewhere else today because I'm good here. Is that any of us, though? Can any of us put a stiff arm in in God's face and say, I got this? You might want to help him, and you can point to someone in in this congregation. No, no, no you exercise your dependence in parenting you exercise your dependence in ministry you exercise your dependence in evangelism you exercise your dependence in everything by prayer a man or woman who doesn't pray is a spiritually arrogant individual and i know cuz i have been spiritually arrogant more than i can tell you so how you doing Are you preaching the right message, utilizing the right means, casting the right vision, targeting the right goal, extending the right effort, employing the right message, the right uh, uh, might though, using God's offered power? Let me ask you a question. Go home with your wife, your spouse, your kids, your husband, um, whoever you live with. And talk about it. How do you grade yourself on these? How are we doing? We will only be doing as well as a church in these areas as you are doing individually in these areas. This is Paul's personal philosophy of ministry that's supposed to be applied personally with all of us and if it's applied personally by all of us or even most of us we will have a corporate momentum of ministry that I think Kansas City is going to scratch their head and say what is going on at that place. I would really like for the enemy to know we're here. But it doesn't start by us yelling at those people on Mission Road it starts by us caring for the people in this building. So, join a care group, please. No excuse not to. Are you too busy for that? Please consider it. Father, give us clear instruction on how we can apply this passage. Make our church faithful to expend ourselves in a proper biblical philosophy of ministry. For your glory and for our common good with each other, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.